I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In the New Testament, there's a group of letters by Paul that all start with T. So you'll find them. They're alphabetical. There's five of them. 1 and 2 Thessalonians, then 1 and 2 Timothy, and then Titus. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. I'm going to read the closing paragraph starting in verse 23. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. The Spirit of God speaking through the Apostle Paul says this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Father, we pray as we turn our attention to your word that your spirit has, he's already done as we sing your truth, that he would work in our hearts to bring correction and conviction and comfort and unity and joy and zeal to serve Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. This is the last sermon in our study of First Thessalonians. And even though I'm the one preaching each week, like you, I generally live week to week, so I don't always feel the passing of time. I don't have a sense of how much time has passed, so I had to look at my records to figure out how long we've been in this study. And in looking at my records, I thought, well, let me keep looking back to figure out what else we've covered. I thought that might be a good uh, reminder for us. So I went back to 2020, because that kind of rearranged our schedule. But right around the middle of 2020, we, just, we decided to preach through First Peter because it dealt with suffering, it deals with honoring Christ in the midst of difficulty. The study of First Peter took us all the way to the end, almost, of 2021. And then we started studying the book of Daniel. And that was sort of a connection out of First Peter because Daniel's a man who stood up for the truth and he honored God in a culture that was opposed to him. So we taught through Daniel, and intermixed with that, we dealt with some specific issues that were important because they're rejected by the culture, if you remember that. Then we finished the first half of Daniel, the second half of Daniel, a lot of doctrine, the visions, a lot of theology there, a lot of historical studies. Our study in First Thessalonians came immediately after we finished Daniel, which was in July of 2022. After today, we'll have a total of 38 sermons in the book. So 38 sermons, and they've been stretched out, not all sequential because of uh, guest preachers. We did a study in there on sexual purity. We did some holiday Christmas messages, and we had a sermon in there I added about eschatology. But in all, it's been just over a year since we started studying this letter, and I trust it has not been for nothing. Uh, I know that's the case because God promises that he will work through the proclamation of his word. For unbelievers, the work of the Holy Spirit can be conviction of sin. It can also be to harden them in their sin, in their unrepentant heart. 
For God's children, though, the work of the Bible is to sanctify us. It is to make us more and more like Jesus Christ in holiness. We know that the culture has shifted. We're no longer in what was called cultural Christianity. There were some benefits to cultural Christianity in terms of God's general grace and common grace on the world. But one of the downsides is that people began to assume, if I look like a Christian, then I am a Christian. And we need to make sure we don't have that idea of sanctification in our minds. Christ's goal, as he works in your heart, is not simply external conformity. You go to church and you do other things. He's not just looking to change the way we behave. By his spirit, God is working on our hearts at at, at the deepest level of who we are so that we would begin to love and desire Christ more and turn away from, in our heart, at the heart level, the things of this world. Like Paul said to the Corinthians, his spirit is taking us from one degree of glory to another. And in doing that, we're not just growing closer to Christ, we're growing closer to one another. We are, on the one hand, united eternally and spiritually to Christ and one another. That's a spiritual, eternal unity, but there's also a practical unity. We're we're growing in our ability to express and to celebrate the unity that we have. That also is part of God's work, God's plan in your life. And I encourage you this week, since we're finished studying this epistle, to go back and take a day, sit down, and read the entire letter. I think it'll be good having preached through it. Let the Lord remind you of things that we've covered. One of the things you'll find in this letter is how many references there are to love, at least directly with the word love or, or indirectly. This, is, this was a loving church. They came, they loved God, they loved the word, they loved one another. Paul, in the middle of the letter, prays that their love would grow, and then he instructs them. He wants their love to abound more and more. Remember that? Behind the love that this church had, behind the love that they expressed and and would be growing in was the grace of God. Paul understood that, and it's something we need to understand as well. We're not just in this by our own making. Everything you have, everything you are, everything we are as a church, everything we enjoy in a general common sense and in a Christian sense is only through the grace of God. There's nothing we deserve. There's nothing we can earn for ourselves. This is God's gift. That's what Paul told the Ephesians of your salvation. It's a gift of God. It's by God's grace that we're here this morning. We got people on vacation, people sick. We understand God sustains us. He, he sustains our life physically and he does so spiritually. It's God's grace that has reconciled us to the Father through the death and resurrection of Christ. And it's by God's grace that we're growing spiritually. I'd like you to go back with me to the opening verses of this letter, maybe a page or two in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Just to remind us of how Paul opened this letter, a common way he opened his letters, it says there, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. We know Paul was the primary author. Silvanus and Timothy are there with him. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul has two co-workers there with him. They're the ones who preached and proclaimed in Thessalonica. They're the ones who founded that church. And a short time later, once they're gone, they write this letter, and in doing so, they don't credit themselves. This is not the church of Paul. 
This is the church of God the Father. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in that name that Paul writes the letter. The end of verse one, after he does that little introduction, he says, grace to you and peace. That's a common greeting for Paul in the scriptures. It's interesting to compare that to greetings today. We say hello, which essentially means nothing. Paul says grace to you, peace. The Jews, you would say rejoice. There's a meaning behind this. So we don't want to let the repetitiveness and the commonness of this phrase detract from what Paul is saying here. He's acknowledging his dependence on God. Grace to you. You need the grace of God. King Solomon, the son of David, wrote in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In other words, if God's not in what we're doing, this is meaningless. And we can say the same about the church globally, and we can say the same about our church here at First Bilingual. Unless God does the work, our work will accomplish nothing. Jesus said that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so with that heart of humility and dependency on the grace of God, it shouldn't surprise us that as we come to the end of Paul's letter, he says almost the exact same thing. So go back to the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 28. This is Paul's final These are Paul's final words to the Thessalonians in this letter. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Everything he did depended on the sovereign grace of God, and everything we do depends on the grace of God as well. Now, having studied the letter and having grown up, those of you who grew up in the church, I hope you understand that depending and relying humbly on God's grace doesn't mean that we get to sit back on our sofa and wait for God to do everything. We are called in the grace of God to work. In God's marvelous plan and in the mystery of his sovereignty, it is our personal effort that the spirit is going to predominantly use as he works in us. So sanctification is God working. He has to do that, but we have a responsibility. As we finish up this letter, I'm not going to give a, a detailed theology lesson. It's going to be more like a devotional. But I simply want to give you three final reminders and encouragements concerning the grace of God. The grace of spiritual growth, ultimately, we know, comes from God, but we have a part to play in it. We have a part to play in it for ourselves and for our brothers and our sisters. And in the closing farewell, the final verses here, Paul gives us three ways that that happens. There is the grace of prayer, the grace of fellowship, and the grace of scripture. And we're going to look at them one at a time. The first comes in verse 25, the grace that comes to us through prayer. Very simply, Paul says, brothers, pray for us. Pray for us. And that would go back to Paul and his team, Savannah and Timothy. Paul is not asking for prayer in a greedy sense, you know, like a, like a con man asking for money. Give me your prayers. It's not this. He is Paul. This is the, the super apostle Paul who founded the church. He can do whatever God wants him to do. And yet he says, no, I need you to pray for me. He said the same thing to the Colossians, said the same thing to the Ephesians. 
Paul recognizes his own dependency on the strength that comes by God's grace, and at the same time, he recognizes recognizes the efficacy of prayer. God's grace will come to him through prayer. That's why just a few verses earlier, he said to the church, pray without ceasing. God hears our prayers. We covered the, the, the motivation behind our prayer. God hears us. And again, rather than do a Bible study on prayer, we've done that. I just want to press you and press us as a church on this issue. It's a question we all should ask ourselves to evaluate and and to grow. How are you doing in prayer? How are you doing specifically with, with, with this verse in regard to praying for your brothers and your sisters in Christ? Those of you who are members of our church, you made a commitment to pray. It's part of our membership covenant. You can't say you love Christ and you don't care about prayer. You can't say you love your wife but don't want to ever talk to her. Our membership covenant says, I'll read it, quote, I will pray regularly for the ministry here at church, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, for the leadership and direction of the church, and for the lost who need the Savior. More than once in the past couple months, I've heard different people ask the question, if everybody you prayed for to come to salvation in the last month came to faith, how many people would that be? It's another way of asking, who are you, who are you praying for? Are you and I being faithful to that commitment as members? Are we excelling in this? Because I can't say that I am. I confess that to you. It is difficult to be faithful in prayer. So many things will crowd out what matters, and we don't pray. At the beginning of this year, I was told by a pastor friend of mine about an app he uses to pray, and it's essentially a digital flashcard. So you have flashcards, and you can make stacks, if you will, stacks of flashcards, and you can set them up, and the app will tell you what to pray for, and it helps make sure you cycle through that. And so I started the app, and I created flashcards for personal issues in my own life. I have flashcards for members of my family. I have flashcards for unbelievers I'd like to see come to Christ. I have flashcards for other pastor friends of mine in their churches here in Southern California. I have flashcards that have specific scripture passages about prayer. And then I have a stack of flashcards, if you will, digitally, for our members. And I did it by household. So our members right now have 77 households. And every time I pray, the app will shuffle these. And of the household, the church member app, I'll get five every time. So at that pace of five families a day, 77 families total, I should be done almost every couple weeks, 15 days. But it takes me a whole lot longer to pray for our church than two weeks. Why is that? I got the app. Why does it take more than two weeks? Because an app can help you organize your prayers, but it doesn't pray for you. You don't, oh, you know, I'm just gonna turn it on. That'll, that'll take care of it. It's like having an app that counts your calories or tracks your spending. If you don't use the program, it's not gonna help you. What do you do to pray? The Hebrews had times of prayer. You read Acts and it says Paul was at the hour, Peter, sorry, at the hour of prayer. He was there on the roof. You can use an app. You can use a sheet of paper. You can use photos on your fridge. You can use whatever it is. But you need to find ways to pray for one another more and more frequently. Because that's how God's grace is going to be working in us individually and in us corporately. 
part of that commitment was to pray for the leaders. And I'm going to, on their behalf, say the same. Pray for us. We need your prayers as your pastors. Right now, it means we're getting ready to discuss and, and talk about next year. That means we've got to prepare a budget. And a budget's not just about numbers. It's about priorities. We're thinking about how to best minister to members in, in tough situations right now. We have a list of inactive members, non-attending members, and thinking through what's the best way to serve them and minister to them. We need the wisdom of God. We need the strength of God to move forward in these areas because we're all just like you, busy and lazy and tired. We need prayers. And, and so does your brothers and your sisters in Christ. We show up at church and we shake hands and we say hello and everything looks great. And we don't always emphasize the fact that we need prayer. We tend to put prayer in the category of big things, you know, financial things. You're on the brink of divorce. You're, you're going to lose your house. You're going to, you know, something, someone died. Let's pray. For, and we should. But we should also pray for our souls and for the work of Christ in our lives. You meet with someone in between services, you catch up with them over coffee. It's good to ask them questions about their lives, but you can also very simply, in addition to ask them, how can I pray for you? It's such an easy question, but it's also such an easy question to forget. I forget. How can I pray for you? If you want another practical way to pray better for others and with others, come next week, next Sunday night. We'll be here for a prayer meeting. We're here for, for one hour. We're asking God to work in us and through us. Prayer is the invitation of God's grace into our lives, and he delights to respond. So Paul simply says, brothers, pray for us. A second expression of the grace of God comes to us in verse 26, and this is the grace of God in fellowship. We experience and we express God's grace through fellowship. Verse 26, he says, greet all the brothers with the holy kiss. So on the one hand, that could be Paul saying, hey, hey, make sure you say hello to everybody on my behalf. But more than that, he's talking about a picture that he wants in the church. Hey, you guys need to greet each other with a holy kiss. There might be Christians out there who take this as a literal, direct command, meaning you're supposed to kiss each other when you meet one another. Others will see it more like the way we see the command to wash feet, meaning, well, that was a cultural expression of the time period. It's not definitively binding. If you're in that second group, you still have to ask yourself, what's behind the instruction Paul is giving? And then ask yourself, how do I do that today? So Christ's command, there are groups who believe we should wash feet. They, they practice that in their churches. But even for us, we don't do that at our church, but we know that behind Christ's command to wash feet was the instruction to humbly love and serve others. It was humility and love. And so even if I'm not going to wash your feet, I can humble myself and serve you by opening my home and serving you a meal or washing your car or cleaning a toilet. This is service and humility. That's the bigger idea behind washing feet. What's the bigger idea behind the kiss? The bigger idea is familial affection. This is how brothers and sisters expressed their unity. If you've read uh, Song of Solomon, there's a verse in there where the, the, the would-be wife says, oh, that you were my brother. You know, my, you were my brother, what does that mean? She loves him. 
She wants to hug him. She wants to kiss him. And in that culture, even married couples were not to express public displays of affection. The only public displays of affection that were acceptable were between a brother and a sister. So she says, oh, you were my brother. I, I just, I just want to hug you and kiss you publicly right now. Here it's familial affection. It got to a point where in the Roman Empire, there were um, accusations against the Christians that they were engaging in fornication and immorality. They go out there talking about love and who knows what they do behind closed doors. And obviously that's slander on the church. But that existed because you had a community that expressed love. This instruction to greet one another with the holy kiss is given five times in the New Testament. Paul says it to the Romans. He says it in each of his two letters to the Corinthians. He says it here to the Thessalonians. And then Peter says it at the end of his epistle. Greet one another with the holy kiss. A kiss is the expression of affection. And tied to that is what he says, greet all the brothers. So it's not go around kissing everybody. It's not the point. He's saying there should be some affection shown when you gather. I, I kiss my mom, I kiss my grandma, I kiss my aunts when I greet them. I kiss them when I say goodbye. I kiss them on the cheek. When I'm with my uncles and my grandpa, I go, I shake their hands, I give them a hug. I, I was taught to do that from a very young age. We would go to the family gathering at Christmas time, and let's say at midnight, dad said, hey, it's time to go. Well, he said it at midnight, but you didn't get in the car until like 12.30. Because one, you had to pack up all the gifts from Christmas, and two, all of us are going to find every single aunt and uncle to give them their hug, to give them their kiss, and say goodbye. That's what it looks like to be part of my family. So what does it look like to be part of God's family? What does it look like to be a member of the church? It means, on the one hand, you have people praying for you. It also means you have visible affection. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord, and when we gather, that connection should be visible. It's not a romantic thing. That's a different kind of kiss, right? This is a, he adds the word, a holy kiss. This is a kiss between a brother and a sister. And while I don't feel like I have the freedom to say, go around, make sure you kiss everybody when they enter, I do feel comfortable telling you in the Lord that when you gather with his people, that affection needs to be visible. In some cases, or with little kids, it's going to be a high five or a handshake or a hug, but there's something that shows that we know someone. If I see you during the week at the grocery store and I do nothing, you're going to go, what, something's wrong here, right? We know each other. There's a, there's a greeting here. That's what a kiss was. It was a greeting. Jesus said that to the Pharisees. I came in. You didn't give me a kiss. This woman kissed me. We have a lot of people in our church who came out of the Roman Catholic Church, and, and most of them will testify to you that they went to church as children, they didn't know anybody else there. You show up, the priest does his thing, it ends, you go home or you go to lunch, and that's it. You don't know anybody sitting around you. There's no meaningful connection to the people next to you. That is not God's design for the church. And it's sad to think that people even in the church say, well, I'm going to go watch a football game at a bar because that's where I feel like I have my close friends. Here at First Bilingual Baptist, we are members of the same family in Christ. And Jesus, our Lord, said, by the love that you have for one another, the world will know that you're my disciples. So think about that in your own life. Think about that for the way that you raise your kids. 
Yes, our brothers and our sisters need prayer. But sometimes they also need a hug and a handshake and a hand on a shoulder. They need a visit during the week. They need a phone call. They need a, a text message. What can you do? What can your family do to grow in the way that you express and enjoy the grace of God that comes through fellowship and affection with your family in Christ? What can you do? How can you grow? How do you connect? I'll give you one simple, practical way to connect with others, and I'll move on to the last point. My encouragement to you in regard to connecting with others is come early, leave late. Come early and leave late. As I am prepping for this, it's ironic. My dad and I have an obligation, and we have to shoot out of here as soon as this service ends. And I understand that that happens for you guys as well. We have obligations, things we can't avoid. But to the degree that you're able, I'm going to encourage you to come early and leave late. On Sunday mornings, that means coming a little early, not just so you can get a better parking spot, but so you can sit down with the people who've also come early and talk free, not in a hurried way because service is about to start. Pray with them. When service is over, you stay a few minutes later or you end up going with someone out to lunch or take them to your house. You do that, and over time, and with some intentionality, that creates affection. Tonight, we're going to have the Lord's Supper service. You come a little early. You stay a little late. That helps you connect with others. It's intent, there's a reason why we have dinner afterward. And, and, and yes, it, everything's optional here. But this is what cultivates the unity that we have to stay over a meal and, and talk with someone. You have to ask yourself, is your life really so busy that you cannot spare two hours on a Sunday afternoon? Are you really that busy or have you mismanaged your time so poorly during the week that you can't be with us? Ask yourself that. We're also doing our, our FLG sign-up. So this is the FLG plug. That's a way to connect with people. When you're in an FLG, I'm encouraging you the same thing. Come early, leave late. Ask the host. There is a proverb that says, if you're in your neighbor's house too long, they'll hate you, okay? So I'm not saying show up the day before, right? But the host will let you know. Come a little early. Stay a little late. You meet with them. You, my kids enjoy. You play with the kids. Don't be, you don't want to be the last one there and the first one out. Let God cultivate in you a love and an affection for his people. We are to enjoy being around each other. If we're walking around kissing and hugging people and there's no affection in our heart, that's an expression ultimately of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy doesn't mean doing something you don't like. Hypocrisy is pretending something's true that's, that's not. The Pharisees, oh, I'm righteous. I do everything good. The sinner goes, the, the, the humble, repentant sinner says, I don't like taking out of the trash, but I just have to do it, and I depend on the strength of the Lord. And I'm asking God to change my heart so I will delight in serving him. We can do the same thing with regard to affection. Let's see how God grows the affection in our hearts and let's see how that affection becomes a channel for the grace of God in your life, in your family, and ultimately in our church. One final exhortation, verse 27. 
We saw God's grace through prayer. We were reminded of God's grace through affection and fellowship. Lastly, verse 27, we see the grace of God through the scriptures. Verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. So there's some member in Thessalonica who received the letter, and he probably would have read it himself. And very strong words here. I put you, Paul says to him, I put you under oath before the Lord to make sure this letter gets read to all the brothers. Reading the scriptures we know was a priority for the church. In Paul's letter to Timothy, he told him, you need to devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. That's part of what the church did. That's what we do at the start of our service. We elevate the word of God. But now Paul charges with an oath the person who received the letter to read it. Which is an expression that Paul understood there was something significant about what he was writing. The Holy Spirit was moving in Paul as he wrote and he, Paul, understood that he wasn't just giving his opinion. He wasn't just giving uh, you know, sound advice. He was writing with the authority of Christ. His letter, by, by asking and charging his letter to be read in front of the congregation the way the rest of the scriptures were, he was equating this letter with scripture. The entire church needed to hear it and they needed to respond accordingly. Why? Because Paul was a man who commanded respect? No. Because Paul was writing on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was just the messenger but he had been delegated authority as an apostle. He had been confirmed by Peter and James and John, and the Spirit was confirming in him that this was authoritative writing. We have things Paul wrote that are not in the Bible. He wrote two other letters to the Corinthians. He wrote a letter to the church of Laodicea. We don't have those letters. God has not seen fit to provide those letters for us as eternal scripture. But where the word of God goes, the Spirit of God goes as well. And since Paul wanted the grace of God to be working in the Thessalonians, he knew they needed to be committed to reading and to studying and to teaching scripture. Just a few verses before, he already told them, do not quench, don't turn off, don't extinguish the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. That Greek word for despise means to make of no account, to regard with contempt. It is to minimize the importance of something. It's the opposite of respecting and revering something. So again, ask yourself, what role does the word of God play in my life? What role does the word of God play in my home with my family? What role does the word of God play in my interaction with my brothers and sisters in Christ? If it's this word that is God's primary instrument to work in our hearts, what priority are we giving to it? We're gonna gather, we're friends, we're family, and so there will be conversations. I don't think it's wrong to talk about sports or how our kids are doing or how work is going or how society is doing or political things, but if that is the extent of our conversations, how are we any different than the rest of the world? All these things are to be seen in light of the grace and the power and the plan of God. We're called in Ephesians to speak the truth in love. And the greatest, most impactful truth we have is the word of God. 
We speak the truth. I want to read you a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He was an English Baptist preacher in the 1800s. Along this line of speaking and being filled with scripture, in this quote he mentions John Bunyan. He's the author of Pilgrim's Progress, a Puritan from the 1600s. Here's the quote. Spurgeon says, Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it. So ought we to do with the word of God. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our inmost parts. Spurgeon continues, he says, it is idle, it is laziness, merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historic facts. But it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. And then he says to his congregation, I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Read anything of his and you will see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his Pilgrim's Progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say why this man is a living Bible. And speaking of John Bunyan, Spurgeon said, prick him anywhere. His blood is bibbling. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you Beloved. These are from generations of people who didn't have the Bible on an app, whose congregations didn't all have the Bible in their hands. How inspiring these words are, and at the same time, how convicting, right? We're more prone to quote movies and TV shows. This is a challenge for all of us to, to speak the word of God more and more, and not in the way the Pharisees would have done it, not in a self-aggrandizing way, not, not, not in a self-promoting way, but in a way that is the product of our own study and our own delight in the word of God. We are to be speaking from the heart. Jesus said, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The stuff you soak in, the stuff that comes to you through the TV, through your phone, through the computer, the stuff we invest in, that's what shapes the things that we talk about. So if we want to see God's grace in our lives, and if we want to see God's grace in our church, let's be diligent students of the word of God and then speak it to one another in love. This church of the Thessalonians, was a, it was a baby church. Paul loved them and his desire for them was that they would grow and continue for generations, strong. He wanted to see the grace of God working powerfully in this little church and so he calls them to be a church of prayer, 
to be a church that demonstrates brotherly affection and to be a church devoted to the word of God. As you and I do the same, we'll see the fulfillment of verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with us. Father, we are grateful for your grace in our life that has come through the prayers of others, through the affection of others, and through the instruction of others. We pray that this would shape the culture of our lives and our families and our church. We pray your grace would be evident. We thank you that as we gather and and as the years go by in our time in this church that you've grown our love and our affection, would that never stop? Keep us from being greedy for grace, seeking always to receive but never to give. We want to be channels of your grace and in that experience joy and peace and satisfaction because we are useful instruments in the hands of our Lord and Redeemer. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.